Welcome everyone to The Demand Side. I'm your host, Edward Brown. On today's episode, we're talking about radicalizing markets and how this can provide more meaningful returns to society than our current system of markets. Here to discuss is our very special guest, Professor Eric Posner. Professor Posner is the Kirkland and Ellis Distinguished Service Professor of Law and the Arthur and Esther Kane Research Chair at the University of Chicago. His research interests include financial regulation, international law, and constitutional law. He has written many popular books, including Last Resort, The Financial Crisis and the Future of Bailouts, The Twilight of International Human Rights, Economic Foundations of International Law, and the book we will be looking into today, Radical Markets, Uprooting Capitalism and Democracy for a Just Society, which he wrote alongside Glenn Weil. Professor Posner, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's nice to be here. So, uh, Professor, we're very, very happy to have you on today. Um, yeah, as I said, we're going to be discussing uh, your book, Radical Markets, uh, a book I, I, that is just such a fun read and really makes you look at many of our current market systems in, in a different light. But before we get into some of the book's specifics, why don't we have you talk a little bit about the book and, and what exactly is a, a radical market and, and why you decided to, to write about this particular issue? Sure. So uh, a radical market is, is not so much a thing, I would say. It's more like an approach to thinking about reform. Uh, the, the title was actually suggested to us by a, an editor at a press. And uh, so I'm not going to take too much credit for it. It's quite clever, though, because the word radical has multiple meanings that, we, that are relevant to what we do. So part of the idea is Radical means, you know, going to the root of things. And so we try to go to the root of market and political institutions, understand them from the ground up so that they can be resigned, uh, redesigned to produce um, better outcomes. And uh, this is in, in contrast to what a lot of economists and lawyers do when they think about reform, which tends to be technocratic and incremental rather than radical in this sense. The second meaning of radical is um, the, the, mean, the mathematical meaning that's used, for example, in square root. And as we might have time to talk about, the square root plays a big role in all of the ideas in this book. And then the third meaning is the, this idea of radical politics. And uh, I, I don't consider myself a, a radical in that sense, but I do think that... Um, our focus on equality uh, is, well, when we wrote this book in 2017, 2018, was not part of the mainstream discussion among economists, not, not so, so much as it is now. Um, and so the focus on equality, which has a slightly left-wing feel in this country, um, is another sense in which we're interested in radical markets. So we want to redesign markets so that they not only promote efficiency or growth, but also equality. And um, we wrote this book uh, because there was a sense uh, even four or five years ago that uh, like uh, economics and law and economics and general policy debates had run out of steam a little bit and didn't seem to be up to the challenges posed by 
modern social conditions, which, uh, and, and particularly uh, economic stagnation, low growth, growing inequality, as Piketty uh, demonstrated so eloquently, and this sense that culturally and politically the country is falling apart, both the US and, and other countries as well. So the thought was things are getting bad or not getting good quickly enough. Let's try to think about reform in a more uh, radical way and see where that takes us. That's great. Um, you, you say in the book that uh, our premise is that markets are, and for the medium term, will remain the best way of arranging a society. Um, but while our society is supposed to be organized by competitive markets, we contend the most important markets are monopolized or entirely missing. And that by creating true competitive, open and free markets, we can dramatically reduce inequality, increase prosperity and heal the ideological and, and social rifts that are tearing society apart. And, and you also know that the, the market faces no serious contender um, a, a, as an approach to organizing large scale economies. And, and I, I 100% agree. I think, I think markets are uh, just a, a great wealth creation machine and, and they just need to be shaped in a way where no one is left behind. And, and I think that's what I like most about your book is that you sort of take issues with both political parties and their approaches. You say you, you, you agree with those on the political right uh, on the idea that, that markets must be strengthened, expanded, and purified, but that there is a fatal flaw in their thinking and that they neglect the, the social changes that, that need to be made so markets can, can truly flourish. Um, and with regard to the political left, you, you agree that uh, existing social arrangements generate unfair inequality, but you, you disagree with the left's uh, approach of, of relying solely on discretionary government bureaucracy to to fix society's ills uh from my perspective it seems like you've created an entirely new approach to political economy so can you talk a little bit about that and and maybe a little bit about uh william vickery the the brilliant man you you dedicated the book to sure so i think um that uh the, the you know debates involving academics and commentators, politicians over the last several decades have gotten stale and repetitive. Although uh, right now, you know, it, it might be changing a little bit, but but certainly when we wrote this book, there was this sense that the two sides were caught in in these kind of um, hackneyed positions. For on the right, it was just markets are great. We need more markets. We have to get rid of the bureaucracy and government discretion. Uh, on the left, as you say, there is this sense that the government should do more, although often it was hard to articulate. E even now, we, we you know you get the sense, especially among people who call themselves socialists, some people in the in the Democratic Party and on the left, they don't really want to return to the era of state ownership that was such a disaster in uh, you know much of the world. 
but they're not very clear about what it is that they think uh, should re should replace it. Um, but if you go back, let's say, to the 19th century, uh, there was a lot more intellectual ferment going on um, among all kinds of people. And, and maybe the true hero of the book is Henry George, who was in some ways, um, you know, he he looked he he recognized problems like inequality and all the ills that attended industrialization. He saw, um, though, that markets created a lot of wealth, and his his interest was in how to design markets in a way that would uh, generate better outcomes. And, and victory is is in a lot of ways his his most modern and maybe most successful and um, prominent descendant. Um, Vickery was a, a great economist. Uh, I believe he spent his career at Columbia, or certainly most of his career at Columbia. He died late in the 20th century, 1996, I think. And Vickery also was very much of an original thinker. He was idiosyncratic. Uh, he, he was a big fan of, of Henry George, as I mentioned, who Henry George, uh, I'll probably come back to him a few times. He, he was not actually an economist. He was, he was a journalist who was obviously very brilliant and absorbed economic ideas at the time. But like George, he was, you know, it was hard to think of him as either left or right. Maybe he was a bit more on the left, but he, he was very much um, committed to economics and to the idea that, he, that sort of markets can, uh, are good. Now, Vickery's, Vickery made lots of contributions, but his distinctive contribution that is relevant to this book is his um, uh, participation in the development of the mechanism design literature, and specifically in the use of that literature for the design of auctions. So he was one of the founders of, of modern uh, auction theory. And what's interesting about auctions is that in a way, they're, you know, they're markets. You can think of them as creating markets, new markets. Um, they're not what we normally think of as markets, which are, you know, just lots of buyers and sellers interacting with each other um, with a kind of a price that's just set um, in a decentralized way. Um, but at the same time, they reflect very important economic principles, especially a, an idea, of course, that's often associated with Hayek that for economies to function, private information has to somehow get out, um, and people have, have strong incentives to um, keep their, you know, their valuations to themselves. And auctions are, are a kind of a solution to this problem. Vickery not only um, thought about auctions as an economic device, but also contributed to um, ideas about how auction theory can be used politically to produce better political outcomes. Um, now, uh, so we dedicate our book to him because a lot of what we're doing really follows from what uh, Vickery started. And while Vic Vickery was, was widely uh, admired and quite influential, there, there is a sense in which his approach is, is not the dominant approach taken by the economics profession when it advocates policy reform. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's get into some of the, the, the problems you outline in the book. I, I liked how you showed the reader that, uh, you know, Adam Smith, uh, who, uh, for some reason has been, you know, adopted as the political rights hero, uh, was in fact quite radical in his time. Uh, you know, he didn't think that free competitive and open markets were automatic or inevitable. Uh, 
which sort of very sort of flies in the face of, you know, the conservative viewpoint that government just needs to get out of the way and let markets do their thing. Um, and you also touched on the, the philosophical radicals, the heroes of your book that you've sort of already talked a little bit about in this, in the, in this interview, um, and, and how they sort of came to prominence in the, in the face of a constellation of woes closely related to what we're seeing today. So what are some of the issues that you're most concerned about today? And, you know, you know, ones that could be fixed uh, with uh, more radical markets? Yeah, Smith was concerned uh, about monopoly, as you know, and he was concerned both about private monopolies, he was concerned about cartels, but he was also concerned about government-created monopolies, which were much more common in the 18th century uh, than they are now, and various types of institutional and legal bar barriers that um, protected the monopolies of, you know, usually the landed aristocracy. There, there were still elements of feudalism in the English economy in the 18th century, or, or important elements of feudalism, of course, mercantilism, and so forth. And Smith and his followers, people like Bentham and Mill, who often called themselves radicals because they were attacking the dominant view of the time, um, really, you know, a lot of what they advocated was just more competitive markets. Um, monopoly was this big problem. And the opposite of monopoly is competition. They didn't think that was all we needed, but there was a lot of work to be done. And, there were, and so Smith and, his, and many of his followers focused on that. Um, with George, it was the same thing. With Henry George in the late 19th century, one of the big problems at the time was that there's all this land. This was true in, in England as well as in the United States. It was sitting around. It was owned by these lazy aristocrats and wasn't being developed. And then there were all these people, entrepreneurs and others, who really needed some land to build their factories and couldn't obtain. And, and this was, again, a kind of monopoly problem. The lazy aristocrats lived off the rents coming from their lands, paid by farmers who you know, were engaging in a really inefficient type of agriculture. And George you know, had this idea about how to solve this problem, this, this problem of monopoly. So today, I think one of the things about the book that is really central to the book, but you know, may not be as clear as, as I would have hoped, is that we see monopoly as a problem. And we don't see just monopoly in the sense of you know, Google being having a search monopoly or Facebook having a social media monopoly, or even you know, airlines having a kind of a cartel, or you know, there are lots of industries that are quite concentrated, but others have pointed this out and have advocated ways um, to address it. But in a way, um, that type of monopoly is not really what we're concerned about. We're concerned a bit about it. We're more concerned about the monopoly that arises naturally in um, institutions that we take for granted, like private property and uh, political institutions. Um, and so in particular, what monopoly does that is bad, and that pretty much everybody agrees is bad, is that it causes waste, or what economists would say, you know, inefficiency, because the monopolist, in order to maximize revenues, will uh, withhold some output from the market. So that could be land being lying fallow rather than being used. But it also produces inequality, because um, 
most people most people don't own capital, don't own land, don't own uh, asset, valuable assets. And so when you have monopoly, you know the tendency would be that the owners owners of, of, of a lot of property will obtain these rents and other, everybody else, they're just paying higher prices or receiving lower wages. So there's a transfer of wealth to the rich. And, and monopoly ought to be a target of both left and right. And in a way it is, it is and it isn't, but historically it's gotten support from both sides of the spectrum because it's pretty obvious that both of those things are bad and they're bad Maybe the left cares more about equality and the right cares more about economic growth, but monopoly is one of those things where both of those um, benefits are reduced. Um, there's also this concern that uh, monopolies have excessive political power, of course. But um, monopoly, you know, it's a tricky concept. It's not just a single firm owning, you know, all of the diamond mines. It's uh, ordinary people owning a house, for example. Uh, because houses are not commoditized, but uh, highly differentiated, um, effectively, the owner of a house has a kind of monopoly over it, has market power over it. And this is quite evident from the fact that typically it takes a very long time to sell a house. The owner rationally wants to wait for the highest value person to pay the highest price. That means that the house is lying fallow, not being used for productive purposes. And it also means that uh, homeowners, well, prices on general, in general are going to be higher, which hurts lower income people more than uh, higher income people. Um, and this is not just houses, but this is uh, kind of uh, inherent in, in private property and other arrangements in the economy. So the, the issue, of course, the, the things that we're worried about, like everybody else, is economic stagnation and inequality and um, uh you know, the cultural controversies and populism and all that stuff. But our diagnosis is a little bit different that a lot of this is the result of pervasive monopoly or market power. Yeah. Well, before we before we get into, you know, really diving into the the monopoly problem, let's let's talk a little bit about stagnant quality, the combination of inequality and stagnant growth. Um, it seems that, you know, for some weird reason those on the right particularly conservative ec economists believe the the growing inequality we see today is just the the product of certain you know segments of the labor force becoming more talented and 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 being rewarded for their uh, enhanced skill set and that you know they they think the the stagnation we've seen is you know, simply due to, to globalization. And, I, you know, I think that's that analysis is rather weak, but the, you know, the political left provides, you know, just as trite explanation of, of what, you know, what has taken place. So before we get into, you know, the monopoly problem, do you think that, you know, today's issues of inequality, poverty and, and, and stagnation have uh, persisted due to, you uh, a failure of ideas rather than a failure of political action? I think it's a combination of the two. I, I think that um, academics and commentators and other intellectuals who would normally supply ideas have been to some extent co-opted by wealthy interests or status quo interests. Now, I, I don't wanna press this too far, 
I don't think people are being bribed or at least not directly by, by, by <laughs> these. But there is a sense in which um, the, the right-wing think tanks and business people have put a lot of money into supporting uh, academics who like the status quo, who like markets, who, you know, think things are, are great. Or, you know, there are fewer people like that. But in the 70s, 80s, 90s, there, there are more people like that. Or, you know, pro-market, whether or not that is consistent with the status quo. Um, I don't, you know, I think the people, I think there's a selection effect happening here to a, a degree. That's why I don't think this is literally bribery. I think the wealthier interests put, put money into universities where universities have these types of thinkers who um, defend the status quo. Um, and uh, on the left, um, I don't know. I mean, you know, the left has always been kind of a complicated part of the world. There are you know, people with good ideas. There are people with bad ideas. Um, I don't know whether there's been a failure of ideas on the left or not. There's certainly a lot of ideas floating around. But I, I do think that um, there's less of an incentive to come up with good ideas and also in a way that would enable them to be implemented and gain popularity uh, as long as there's so much money going into supporting a kind of not necessarily conservative, but sort of more technocratic, normal type of, of uh, thinking and, and scholarship. Um, but, uh, you know, the world's a complicated place. And, and I think between when we wrote this book and now things have changed a little bit, there's more political action going on. It, it may be good or it may end up being bad. It's hard to say at this point. And there are more ideas being debated now, which I think is actually a, a kind of an underlooked phenomenon. A lot of people are upset about extreme ideas that are being debated or espoused on the left and right. But I think it may in the long run, when we look back, when people look back at this era, see it as a time of great intellectual ferment. So I'm feeling a bit more optimistic now uh, than I was just, you know, three or four years ago. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't think it can hurt. By, by <laughs> any means. Well, let's, um, let's let's get into let's dig a little deeper into the monopoly problem which is sort of the central tenet of your book you you say and and you know this may scare some of our listeners but everybody hang in there because this this man really knows what he's talking about um you say in the book private ownership of property may actually hamper allocative efficiency um and that the the ubiquity of private pro private property in our economy um, empirical research suggests that the misallocation of resources due to monopoly, uh, for instance, you know, idle business equipment, automobiles, sitting in driveways, uh, private art, you know, intellectual property, et cetera, uh, that, that this is reducing economic output by 25% annually, trillions of dollars per year in the U.S. alone. Um, so can you talk a little more about allocative efficiency and the problems that private property prevent, uh, pre presents to society? Um, because I feel like some of our listeners will probably hear these words and think, oh, well, this guy's a Marxist. He wants to get rid of private property when, you know, in fact, that's the that's the furthest thing from the from the truth. 
Right. Yeah. So I'm not I'm not a Marxist. You know, I'm not in favor of uh, state control of the economy. I think that was a terrible thing. And what I am in favor of is uh, a system being in place that inevitably has to be um, enforced by the government. That's just what property rights are that you know, does a better job than uh, what we have right now. So uh, allocative efficiency just means that goods go from people who value them less to people who value them more. And the, the kind of conventional view about private property is that um, first it's good because if people own their property uh, and we're going to have to like talk about what that even means. But if people own their property, they'll have an incentive to invest in it, to make it better, then they'll enjoy it more. Other people will like it and they can save it to other people, sell their property to other people. And that's all great. And then the market enables these sales. So if there is someone who values my house more than I do, that person will come and come to me and say, I'll, I'll pay you $200,000 for your house. And I'll say, that's fine. So this efficient allocative efficiency takes place through the through transactions, and then the investment takes place because people people's expectations in being able to retain their property unless they voluntarily sell it are honored uh, uh, by the law. Now the problem is that uh, th that it's actually hard for people to sell property, um, especially when pro property is unique or idiosyncratic. Uh, so put aside commodities like pork bellies or ball bearings and think about people's houses or even, you know, cars are relatively commodified, but after they've been used for a while, they're all different. They have different levels of wear and tear. Selling a house is really hard because, um, uh, or I should say the sale of a house is, is inefficient, often inefficient or very costly because the person who owns the house, who has the private property in the house, um, wants to get the best price, and uh, people who want to want a place to live, they'll you know they'll come to your house and they'll look at it, and they might offer a price, but they don't have this ability to say, well, if you don't sell to me at a reasonable price, I'll just buy the house next door because there isn't a house next door for sale that's identical. There aren't you know close substitutes, and so the uniqueness of my house gives me market power. And what ultimately happens is I put my house on the market, I hire real estate agents, all that stuff. I leave it on the market for six months. Various people come until eventually um, somebody, I try to predict you know, the highest valuation people who might come and set my price high. And it takes a while for that person to show up. And so that there's a lot of waste built into that process. And economists have known this, of course, for a long time. This is central to a lot of the economics of the of the 1970s, but never, not very many people have kind of drawn out this implication that um, that uh, like the housing market is incredibly inefficient, or the market for any kind of valuable, unique uh, goods. This is true, although also about land, which is what uh, Henry George was was focused on. Land is all unique because you can't duplicate the location. Um, so. The question is, is there a way to improve the allocative efficiency of, of markets involving uh, idiosyncratic uh, goods? And the answer, you know, the, the old fashioned Marxist answer or, you know, left answer would be sure. The government just owns the property. You know, the government okay. figures out, you know, who values it most and can sort of just, you know, assign people to the best piece of land. I mean, if it's a really sort of, you know, 
public-spirited government, they could, they could do that in principle. But the problem, of course, then is how does the government figure out, you know, who actually values the land the most? That would just encourage opportunism, opportunism and, you know, all that stuff. It, it doesn't solve anything at all. Um, our uh, proposal, which is actually not that original with us, you know, it, it goes back 100 years um, in, in various forms. But um, our proposal is this, what we call this common ownership um, what did we call oh, self? Uh, what is I've forgotten what we call it. The, the, call the it cost, the, cost. The, the common ownership, uh, self-assessment self tax, yeah. right? The cost. So uh, the way this works is that um, suppose you 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 own a house, and at the beginning of the year you announce to the government, or maybe you put it on the blockchain, uh, your valuation of the house. You just say, "I value my house at two hundred thousand dollars." And then uh, you pay it your, your property tax, which is a percentage of that. And uh, anyone who wants your house would have the right to force a sale at that price. That's basically the proposal. Now, I want to po point out some ways in which it's it's not it's not socialism. Like it's 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 actually just a form of private property. Um, it's a little bit like a lease, in fact. You know, right. It's, it, right? Which is a form of in the world of law, a lease is just a property interest, no different from what we call fee simple, uh, except it's it's got a term. Now, a normal lease might be for a year. This lease is really a lease that will continue uh, until someone comes along and offers your price. So there's an option to buy that could be exercised at any time. Now, if the system is designed correctly, the owner, the quote owner, <laughs> has the incentive to honestly announce his or her valuation. Uh, the property tax that you pay would tend to encourage you to understate your valuation. But if you understate your valuation, then someone could come along and grab your house from you. So that encourages you, uh, the balance between the two encourages you to state your valuation correctly. You do have protection in your expectations. You still will invest in your house to some extent, because um, you know, when you value it, you're taking into account your investments in the house and you'll require somebody to compensate you more the more that you invest in your house. The transaction problem is completely cured. The sale of the house could in principle take place in a half an hour, um, although I'm sure there would have to be various uh, constraints. But um, this is more of a thought experiment here. And, um, and you would have a new kind of property system. Uh, now, one other thing I want to point out, you know, in case people think this is socialism, I mean, there is, of course, a sense in which we already live in such a world. We, if you pay property taxes where you live, the government has an equity stake in your right. property, right? I mean, you are, this common ownership language we use already exists. Um, we all benefit when other people improve their property because their sales taxes will go up after their property is uh, reappraised. Um, and... There's no such thing as an absolute property right. Some of the problems with private property, for example, that it might be better if, if a road is put in the area where your house is located, are dealt under the current system in an extraordinarily crude way, which is through eminent domain. The government will just force a sale, but at a price that's determined by a bunch of bureaucrats rather than by the owner, uh, him or herself. 
So uh, there's what I, you know, what, what I want to emphasize, I mean, Glenn is a little bit more radical than I am. So he likes to emphasize the <laughs> radical side and I emphasize. Just the, got pulled uh, into it. <laughs> yeah. But the, but, you know, depending on how you design the system, um, it's a, in a way quite continuous with the system, uh, the private property system that, that we have. Yeah. So basically everything is, you know, up for perpetual auction. Everything is is is, is constantly up for auction. You set the sale the the sale price, and you know if somebody hits that price, you know it, it's theirs. And and but the the cost the 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 common ownership self assessed tax, uh, you know you have to pay on the price you set. So you know you won't set it too high because you don't want to pay too much in the in the tax and you don't want to sell it, you know, set it too low because you don't want somebody to come in, you know, and take your house from under you. So, um, you know, I like the thought experiment. I really do. It's, it was, it's, 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 it's fun. It's, you know, it seems like, you know, especially the imminent domain thing, it, it fixes a lot of, you know, a lot of problems that, that, that we face. So, you know, if this were to be implemented, um, what what would some what would be some of the you know immediate impacts from this? How you know some of the 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 positive uh, impacts from from the program? Right. So yeah, I mean, I, I would, I, I, you know, to the extent you know policymakers want to listen to me, I would start with, I would not start with people's houses uh, because of the emotional attachments that people have, and also the risk that we haven't thought about something and. Might that it might go awry. A great place to start would be with government-owned land, of which there's a vast quantity. Huge, huge portions of the United States are owned by the government and are leased out to uh, businesses, oil companies, mineral extractors of various sort, um, people who own uh, sheep and cows. Uh, their grazing rights are, are rented out to them as well. So this is this is this is really more like socialism. You've got government ownership of land, and they and they rent it out to people. They do try to use market prices, but obviously the market prices aren't going to be very accurate in that setting. So if we imagine a cost in that setting, the the extraction companies would engage in this um, process of uh, announcing their valuation. They'd pay a tax based on that valuation, and if some other company realized that it could use these rights more um, productively, it would just take them and pay and compensate uh, the initial owner of these rights. The, that, would, that would, of course, reduce uh, the cost of mineral extraction. It would drive down the price of uh, using this property. The government wouldn't be involved at all. It wouldn't be setting prices, for example. And you know the lower prices that resulted would, of course, benefit everybody uh, benefit everybody uh, generally. And, and now if we extended the, if that worked and we extended the cost to, let's say, broadcast spectrum and other goods and forms of property used by business and it worked there, and then we started extending it to, say, uh, high value uh, consumer property like houses, the effect would be exactly the same. The 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 prices of these goods would decline because basically the cost of transaction would transacting would be reduced. And so just the cost of 
owning and maintaining and trading a house goes down and that those savings will be passed along to people. And these will tend to be the people who tend to benefit will be lower income, you know, non-super wealthy people, lower income, middle class, ordinary people all benefit from uh, lower housing prices. Yeah, I mean, it it it, it seems logical. And, and, you know, one of the the proposals in the book um, uh, was, you know, to the, use the 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 cost uh, tax to, you know, fund sort of uh, a social dividend. Which, you know, I I, I love that idea. Um, you know, I think it would be, you know, very, it could be very progressive uh, if 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 used in the right way. So, um, obviously, this is sort of a thought experiment. But you, I would imagine that you and 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 Glenn have you know, presented this uh, in a bunch of places. So what are the, I guess, some of the the limitations or drawbacks or, you know, the, the, what has the academic community said to, to you about these, these proposals? Uh, yeah, sure. Before I answer that question, let me just add one thing. You, you mentioned the taxation. The taxation is much more efficient this way because it's basically a Peguvian tax on use of a land, of, of land as a result of which, you know, someone else can't use it. Um, and so, yes, the revenue that you raise from a given amount of economic activity should be much higher. And as long as that revenue is distributed in a way that, you know, benefits the poor, for example, it should raise aggregate utility. But we might come back to that when we talk about quadratic building, because you do need a, a method to ensure that the political outcome will occur. So, you know, anticipating this question from you, I actually went to Google Scholar and <laughs> checked up, like, you know, what's going on with radical markets? Um, and, uh, and yeah, we presented these, you know, I, I and Gwen together, we've, we've, we've presented both the book and, and papers, the, uh, some of the underlying papers separately. Um, it's really hard to generalize, you know, um, certain ideas in the, if you just like looked at academic research, I think uh, the chapter on data data has gotten the most attention. Right. Um, this is this idea that people should be compensated for the data that, data that they contribute when they use platforms like Facebook, but Facebook should have to pay for it. Um, there's a lot of debate now about how best to organize markets and data, which are, are broken or, or missing. Um, the quadratic voting uh, idea, you know, there are people, there are articles, people are, have always been kind of interested in that and it's been, people are testing it in various ways. Um, the tests seem to be actually providing support that quadratic that, that was That was the yeah. favorite, I mean, that was my yeah. favorite part of the book. It just yeah. you know, really, really resonated and, you know, I'm, I'm sure other readers felt the same way. Yeah, yeah. And maybe we can talk about it in a bit. Um, the... Uh, the the interesting thing about this book is that I think the academic reaction has been a little bit cool. It might be a little bit I'm cool in the sense of not that enthusiastic. I think some of the ideas might be a little too um, uh, extreme or adventurous. Uh, but we've gotten a lot of attention from, of all places, the cryptocurrency community, uh, where. And it makes a lot of sense because, especially for quadratic voting, they're they're looking for decentralized methods of um, governing blockchains, basically, because 
contrary to myth, they don't, they're not just like self-operating. People have to intervene from time to time and you need a, a good method for doing that. So there's been um, a fair amount of attention in this community where the people are obviously very smart. Um, they're not academics though. So uh, it's a different kind of reaction, but it's been interesting uh, to, to watch it. In terms of limitations or drawbacks, I mean, a lot of people, I think there's a lot of kind of commonsensical pushback that these ideas are, are so unusual or so different from what people are used to that they're, that they're not going to agree to them. Um, and particularly to the cost, you know, a lot of people say, well, no one's going to agree to a system where your house could vanish overnight. Um, I don't think that's correct because, of course, you can make your valuation as high as you want. Right. I mean, um, if some, you, right. they would probably welcome being upended out of their yeah. house if somebody if paid a, the price, you know? Yeah. If it's like $10 million, there'd probably be an insurance market. So, you know, the insurance company would make the estimate for you. And if somebody, there, there are lots of ways to protect people, but it, it does seem kind of exhausting, right? Like, especially if the system were extended to your car and other things that you own, like you constantly have to think about how much the things you have are worth to you. Yeah, that was that was yeah. You know what? That could be exhausting, don't you think? Yeah, <laughs> I mean that's what I guess shook me when I when I read the book was you know are we are we really expected to list every asset we have you know for sale you know wouldn't that yeah. be a, like a full time job since we you know purchase new products every day, um, which is why you know I thought that this this certainly could work. It just there would be, sort of need to be a sort of a minimum asset threshold, uh, you know, that would trigger you having to, to, to list your property. Like I can see it for cars and houses and, mm. and, and stuff like that. But, you know, like, you know, my jacket, you know, I'm wearing, you know, like, obviously that's, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to do that, but. <laughs> right. Although, you know, yeah, I've thought about this a lot. So the simplest response is some kind of minimum value threshold for, for assets, but you know, as, as technology develops, it's easy to imagine the Internet of Things. You know, you buy something, the price automatically becomes your valuation. Maybe your price plus 20 percent right. pay a tax on it. You can adjust it if you want. You know, maybe Siri tells you your valuation on your computer is way too high. Uh, you should lower it. I, you could kind of imagine this happening for some types of assets. Probably it will work better though in industry you know than than for the sort of personal consumption but that was definitely a big part of the pushback for, for quadratic voting as well some people just thought the mechanism is, is too strange people won't want to use it um you know we've we've some people have experimented and actually found that people like using it um and there have been a, a few real world efforts that I think are promising. Uh, the Democrats in, in, in Colorado, in the Colorado state legislature, used quadratic voting to sort of help rank their policy priorities. Um, oh, and wow. yeah, that, that was quite, so somebody you know, came up with an app that everybody could use uh, to register their, their preferences. And um, you know, somebody in the Netherlands, I think it was, tried to create a data union along the lines that we had suggested. So there's some interesting experimentation going on, but it seems like it'll be, this is a long-term process. Yeah. I mean, I, I, 
you know, you talked about the, the government land. I mean, I think for land plots that don't have a house on them, you know, I, I think it's just, it's brilliant. It's perfect, you know, and, and you provide a, you know, a, uh, an example in the book of, you know, trying to install, I think it was like a, a hyperloop or rail or something like that and trying to get a, 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 a track that works and how you would have to jump through a million hoops and, you know, how this, this would uh, alleviate many of those, many of those, those issues. Um, but, you know, let's, let's circle back for a minute to the, the, the distributional impact. You know, we talked about uh, you know, it, it would it would lower prices possibly if it were expanded, and then we had the the idea that the cost would fund a social uh, uh, dividend. Um, but you you noted that the you said that the cost would end the conflict between capital and labor because the returns to capital will flow in some way back to the public, which you know I think is brilliant. So can you, can you talk a little bit about this and maybe some, some other benefits that, you know, weren't mentioned in the book? Well, the, yeah. So, I mean, I think the, that were not mentioned in the book, well, the, um, you know, from the kind of like technocratic perspective, I would just, you know, the, the, the real benefits would be, you know, greater economic growth, greater output and greater equality. So this idea about you know conflict between labor and capital or political conflict more broadly, I mean the basic idea is that if the cost were in place, people would just not gain as much in terms of rents from the assets that they owed as they do now. Um, and so there's you know as Piketty talked about, there's no like uh, there would no longer be an inherent higher return for uh, capital. Uh, than for labor. And, you know, presumably this would help uh, reduce the conflict between people who own a lot of property and people who don't own a lot of, uh, a lot of property. Yeah. I mean, you would just walk down the, walk down the street and see a, a mega mansion and you would be like, good for him. He's, you know, that person's funding my social dividend. Right. <laughs> right exactly. So I, I, that's, you know, that's, I, I think that there, there would be, there would ease that tension between the, the the wealthy and the you know not well off. Yeah, I mean, one would hope. Uh, I, I do think that the last few years have taught us that cultural conflict. I should say, taught me the cultural conflict is, you know, a, a, a lot more complicated problem than just capital versus labor. But it, it would be nice to make a little bit of progress. Yeah. Well, you know, something that 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 really stood out to me as as an economist and as a, a person of faith was how you suggested that this you know idea uh, would encourage uh, you know greater attachment to communities and, and civic engagement rather than material possessions. Uh, you say that you know increasing economic uh, evidence suggests that excessive attachment to homes is inhibiting employment and dynamism in the economy, uh, a problem that a cost would, would greatly reduce and that uh, a cost would make us think about property in a different and healthier way. Uh, a cost taxes objects, not personal relationships. And, 
Uh, oh, and then you go on to say, wouldn't it be better if people invested less of their emotional energy in objects and more in, 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 in personal relationships? I, I, I totally agree. I think, I think we're just becoming you know, far too materialistic as a, as a society. And in my opinion, I think our tax code and, and, and consumerist mindset only encourages uh, more attachment to 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 physical objects. So, you know, what do you can you talk a little bit about this and 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 you know, I guess what what you en- envision the future would look like? Right. So, I mean, at the simplest level, you know, you have basically a kind of a property tax, and so at the margin, it'll discourage people from buying things and at least buying them for investment purposes. And that means they'll spend more of their time not buying things. Now, uh, you know, maybe it'll be personal relationships, but maybe it'll be uh, going on long runs by oneself or, you know, (laughs) walking through nature or something like that. But I I do think, you know, there is both a, there's a problem with the, the incredible level of consumption both for uh, you know the the survivability of, of of like natural resources and the environment, and psychologically, it, it is this kind of treadmill that you know people have pointed out forever. Maybe most famously in this country, Thorstein Veblen, but a lot of economists actually, like Robert Frank and others, have you know hit upon this theme over and over again that there's a kind of a treadmill mentality you you but you buy a lot of the, a lot of the things that people buy they're buying because other people are buying them or because other people have more than you and you want to show that they're not better than you and it's really very destructive you know if we're gonna if if sort of this kind of status competition is inherent in human nature i don't know whether it is but if it is there, there got to be like less expensive and wasteful ways for people uh to engage in it I don't think um, you know. I don't think there there's going to be a short term uh, solution to this, but you know, thinking of property solely in the terms of you know how much it actually contributes to your well being directly, I think you know a tax on property encourages you to do that. You buy things only if they're worth it to you, right? And the destructive impact on the on the rest of society is limited by the tax that's being imposed on, on the purchaser. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's move beyond property. You know, another uh, issue you discuss in the book is creating a, a radical market for politics. Uh, we sort of touched on it a little bit already. Um, you say that uh, while markets are clogged with market power, many areas of human life are lacking in markets that could improve people's well-being. This problem is most acute for goods and services usually provided by governments like policing, public parks, roads, social insurance, and national defense. And that what is needed is a market for political influence. Can you talk about your bold idea of quadratic voting and which, you know, I I, I love and how and how this might change the nature of politics? Right. So, yeah, so the idea of quadratic voting, uh, it's a little bit complicated to explain, but, but it, it, it basically it is a simple idea. But let's just start with the current system, democracy. And basically, if you think of a referendum, for example, about whether a town should build a public park, let's say, some people are for, some people are against, 
you basically have three ways of signaling your degree of 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 opposition or support. You can vote yes, you can vote no, or you could not vote. And this is a very crude way of conveying to your fellow townspeople the extent of your of your interest. Um, uh, you just have three. It's as if you know you can only spend one, two, or three dollars in the market. You're not going right. to be able to tell people much about your valuation. Um, so now you know. What, so how do you how do you allow people to um, uh, express their valuations in a more um, in a more refined way? There have been various proposals about somehow using money, like you could buy votes or make some kind of you know. And to some extent, that exists in our country where people use campaign donations and other types of political contributions to um, express the intensity of their preferences. Right. This, of course, is very unfair, though, because it gives a, a, an advantage to wealthier people. So the way quadratic voting works is that everybody's given some credits. Uh, you could do this with money, but we do not uh, favor that because if people have different levels of money, that introduces unfairness. So instead, what you do, do is you give people an equal amount of credits or tokens or whatever you want to call them. Uh, so you start off, let's say, in the year with 100 uh, credits. And then as various uh, proposals are advanced, they could be referenda, it could be um, uh, uh, you know, elections of office holders, could be anything. The townspeople are allowed to vote using their credits. And the key point about the credits is that you have a limited number of them. So you'll wanna you know, carefully spend them so that you retain enough to express your view about future uh, questions. Maybe you get your credits replenished once a year or something like that. And then there's this quadratic aspect of it, which is that you're allowed to spend as many credits as you want within your budget for a particular proposal, either in favor or opposed. But um, the, the number of credits that you spend for a vote is a quadratic function. So if you vote, if you spend one credit, you can vote, you have one vote. If you spend four credits, you have two votes, nine credits, you have three votes, and so on. And of course, if you vote, if you spend two credits, you'd have the square root of two votes, whatever that is, like <laughs> one point, one something, one point four. Anyway, um, and then that would be added up by you know the the people running the election, and whichever proposal has the most votes or pro or against for any particular proposal, whichever side gets the most votes prevails. So this uh, system preserves de democratic equality because everybody gets the same number of credits that they then can convert into votes. But the really important innovation is that it allows people to express the intensity of their preferences. So if you don't care much about the park, maybe you'll only spend one credit and you'll vote for or against but then something comes along that you care a lot about, maybe gun rights or maybe, uh, you know, abortion rights or, you know, same sex marriage sort of thing that you're passionate about. And you can um, you can say, OK, I'm going to use, you know, 16 of my remaining uh, credits to uh, to uh, to cast four votes. And the um, there are a couple of things going on here. One is people who care more about something will have more influence than people who care less, which is exactly what you want. And right. which of course is what happens in 
markets. In an auction, the person who cares most wins by paying more money, holding constant you know, endowments. Um, the quadratic part of it, I've, I've never been able to just explain it. Uh, you usually need a graph or something like that. But yeah. the, basic, the basic idea is the more votes you cast, the larger effect you're going to have on this outcome, which will, of course, have an impact on all the other people who might disagree with you. And so as you have this larger effect, we want to um, make it more costly for you to have that larger effect. Um, and, and that's what the uh, quadratic function does. And in a way, you know, it's not that different from, uh, you know, what, what people do when it, sort of implicitly when they decide to buy something. You know, if the pandemic's coming and you're trying to buy how many, figure out how many rolls of toilet paper, uh, you know, the, 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 the next roll of toilet paper is going to matter less uh, for you. And so you're less likely to spend uh, money on it. Same idea, that, but converted into uh, political outcomes. Right. So, uh, and you know, and I, I like that the idea that you could use your votes to to vote against you <laughs> rather than mm -hmm. not vote. You could actually vote against, uh, which is which is really really great. So, how um, you know how would this play out? Would would uh, extreme candidates like Donald Trump be able to succeed, or would we have more you know I guess moderate um, outcomes? What 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 do you predict what happened from a quadratic voting world? Well, in principle, you should have, you know, better outcomes in the sense that you're maximizing aggregate utility. But your, your question is a good one because we are concerned about, um, you know, polarization in politics. And quadratic voting actually does put a tax on people with extreme views. You know, because not that many people agree with you, um, the only way that, uh, you know, you can get the outcome you want is by um, you know casting more votes, but as you cast those additional votes, the price goes up um, quadratically, you know, more rapidly than the number of votes that you cast. So if you're passionate enough, you know, you'll do that. But if it's extreme, if there are not a lot of people who agree with you, you're going to lose. You know, so what it does is it does give people with let's say idiosyncratic or extreme views a way to express their views in a way that's not possible under our current system. Under our current system, you know, it's one vote or zero votes, right? That's all you can do aside, you know, you can go on marches and stuff like that. But basically the formal political system gives you one or zero votes. So people with, let's say, extreme preferences do have an opportunity to express them, but there's this quite heavy tax. So unless there are lots of people with the extreme preferences, uh, you're likely to lose. Um, now, of course, you know, if you take someone like Trump, you know, basically, if an, Trump could win with a minority, like if, his, if, if he has, let's say, 48 percent of the public on his side and they care much more about his policies than the other 52 percent, they can outvote the other 52 percent um, under quadratic voting. It's a way uh, for a minority to protect itself um, if the minority uh, cares enough about something. but. Um, but, you know, by the same token, uh, you might have a large number, a majority of people are kind of indifferent and a, a, a smaller uh, group uh, that are whose uh, interests are at stake and quadratic voting gives them an ability to protect their interests more effectively than we do under our current system, where basically the courts will step in to uh, protect the interests of minority, you know, if they feel like it. Right, right.
Well, you uh, you mentioned many other areas where markets could be radicalized, and, and we can't get into them all. But 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 before before I let you go, I think um, our listeners would uh, enjoy hearing uh, your proposal for uh, an auction based system for immigration. Uh, immigration just you know seems like a, a problem that never gets solved, never gets really improved or fixed. And I, I, I you know, I, I think that, you know, what you, your idea is, is very, very interesting and innovative. So can you uh, talk about it and, you know, maybe how it would uh, impact economic growth? Yeah. Uh, so uh, as a number of economists have pointed out recently, probably the one of the biggest you know untapped sources of wealth in the world is uh is migration uh and you know one of the tragedies of the last few years of, of growing nationalism and xenophobia in you know all countries is that is that there's more restriction on cross-border migration for purposes of obtaining work um so you know that that's a shame <laughs> but uh when we wrote this, there wasn't as much, uh, you know, sort of hostility and and anger about this, at least not at the level of legitimate politics. And so we 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 wanted to make it easier, basically, for people to cross borders to work. And with our focus on the United States, the question was, how could we make it easier for people to come into the United States, foreign foreign workers to come into the United States and do some uh, work? Um, now, long before us. Uh, people like Gary Becker proposed, you know, basically simple auction systems where different firms would bid uh, for visas that they could then give to uh, workers. Other people have suggested that foreign workers could, you know, buy visas or borrow money to buy visas. Um, our version of, of of this kind of idea is that ordinary Americans, uh, you and I, and you know, rather than Google and Facebook, would be able to. Um, uh, effectively uh, bring over uh, foreign workers and basically, you know, find a job for them or have them work for oneself and, you know, pay them some amount that is privately negotiated between the, uh, you know, the American and the foreign worker subject to some version of the minimum wage and other worker protection laws. And so people would have a strong incentive to bring people into this country and find productive work for them because they would get a share of it. Right. The the, uh, the foreign workers would have a strong incentive to come to this uh, country. And you know, they could leave if they didn't like it, if it didn't work out. Um, uh, so there would be... Um, so there would be this. Uh, so there would be this kind of you know larger uh, labor market. Now, one thing that was important, and I think some people who are critical of this view don't don't really understand, is that to some extent we have you know a system like this. It's just that corporations do it rather than uh, households. Right. And this goes back to your point about you know the the conflicts between capital and labor. We, we thought that. If ordinary people took the lead in bringing over foreign workers, they would be confronted with the benefits of these types of transactions and would give more support to um, uh, migration, either for work or permanent migration. 
The um, a lot of you know interesting research suggests that the people who are most hostile to foreigners are people who don't actually interact with them very much. You know, they, but they have this kind of vision. You know, they know that there are foreign workers elsewhere in the country, and they have this vision of them. You know, causing crime and so forth. When in fact, that's not true. Right. So the people who actually interact with them directly, you know, understand them, understand us, and, and generally uh, are much more supportive. Uh, of this thing. So part of the goal here was this kind of political and cultural component, and part of it was economic. Right. Well, um, it should be, I guess, clear by now that we uh, we need to find a way to, to solve the monopoly problem if we want to address uh, the stagnant quality we've seen in recent decades, as well as a, a whole host of, of other issues. Um, you say in the book that markets without competition are not markets at all, just as a one party state cannot be a democracy. And, you know, our country was founded in part to, you know, rid us from the, the yoke of monopoly control imposed by the, uh, British East India company over, uh, you know, trade areas. And, and while we, I guess, can't say for sure the the proposals that you outlined in the book will have the 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 outcomes uh you know you say they will i i think that you know many of them are 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 worth testing so you you talked about how the 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 quadratic voting idea was um tested in 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 colorado um do you think that you know there is you know a possibility that some or all of your proposals will be put to the test. I mean, I really would like to see the, you know, the, the cost idea, uh, you know, put to work so we can get some data on its, you know, effectiveness. Yeah, I see a possibility. I think it's long-term. Um, let me, let me say a few comments about each proposal. Quadratic voting, as I mentioned, was, you know, tried in Colorado for an important, although not, you know, officially binding uh, decision-making process. You know, one of our one one of our ideas was that quadratic voting would be good for marketing, and you know, we were thinking along the lines that if we could get business to adopt quadratic voting in marketing, then at some point uh, this, it would it would seem feasible and then politically feasible. And we weren't terribly successful, but there is a lot of interest. And in, and I was just actually looking at a paper that compares does an experiment comparing quadratic voting with the typical marketing methods used by businesses, which all center around something called the Likert test, which is basically ask people on a scale from one to 10, how much do they like this product? You know, the crudest type of marketing and quadratic voting did well, you know, did better because it allows uh, businesses to elicit people's uh, preferences. Uh, so I'm optimistic about quadratic voting, but I think what what I underestimated and I should not have is just, you know, new ideas, you can't just show the logic behind them. You have to, there has to be some emotional valence. People have to try it out. So we'll see with that. On cost, I think that could happen for government property in the medium term. Um, I think, uh, but at the moment, I don't see a whole lot happening. You know, versions of the cost test have been tried out, like in Taiwan, they used something like the cost test for property, except that private individuals were not able to buy the houses at um, 
the uh, the self-assessed price. Only the government could through eminent domain, uh, and that did not. Yeah, and that did not work because eminent domain is so rare that people figured out very quickly that if they stayed a very low price, their taxes are very low, and they don't really have to worry about the government coming and right. buying their house from them. So you know, these kind of things have been tried in little ways, or uh, it would be interesting to see more uh, on data. Uh, uh, so there were some efforts. There's been more discussion. I think the debates and theory of, of how data should be regulated, I think they've got a while to go. I think the problem is so complex and new in many ways that people just have to think more and experiment more uh, before policy will converge in some particular way of, of addressing how data should be regulated. Uh, common ownership is, is becoming an increasingly problem. We didn't talk about this, but we have this uh, proposal for limiting the size of, uh, basically limiting the size of the big institutional investors so that they can't own large stakes of uh, firms that compete in the same market. Our view is probably too extreme in the short to medium term. It's too different from what it's it's really just a version of breaking up firms, but there's been a lot right. of hostility to that in antitrust law for a while. Maybe we'll see what happens with the tech companies, and depending on whether tech companies are broken up, maybe it'll be possible to turn to institutional investors. Um, and on immigration, uh, you know, I think emotions about immigration will have to calm down before it'll be possible to do more of this type of experimentation with different approaches. You know. One thing that I, I've tried to point out to critics is that there are similar programs in the United States. They're very kind of mind, small, but for example, through the State Department, people, families can bring over foreign workers as nannies for a year. Right. And it's right. a kind of a cultural exchange. Uh, it, you know, there's been criticism of this program, but any, anyway, you know, it's, it's certainly doable. But I, I think at the moment, there's just so much anger and confusion about this uh, topic that uh, there just isn't space for, for thinking about reforms that, you know, would do some good, but, but, you know, would offend one or the other of the, of the various uh, kind of tribal positions. So we'll have to wait uh, for that. Uh, you know, I'm kind of happy that there, there's been, um, you know, a lot of, you know, actually kind of open-minded discussion about these ideas from people that I wouldn't have expected. But, the, the, you know, I kind of I kind of knew before we wrote this book, and I, I understand even better that policy reform is really, you know, very difficult. If you're not doing it through the established channels, the kind of established technocratic and bureaucratic channels that we have, it, it's more, you know, the, the, the burden uh, 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 on a proposal is, is much higher and you have to, you know, you have to be really engaging and, you know, more sort of rhetorically po powerful and you've got to get a group of people on your side and that, you know, that's not what I'm good at. So I hope other people <laughs> will do that. Maybe Glenn will, we'll, we'll right. have to see. Yeah. Well, professor, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I, I know our listeners and I have, have learned very much from you and we thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us uh, my pleasure this was a lot of fun thank you if you want to get eric more eric posner his book radical markets is available on the demand sides library page 
And if you want to access all of Professor Posner's research, visit ericposner.com. Professor Posner, thank you again. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's it for us here at The Demand Side. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Virtue of Radical Markets with our very special guest, Eric Posner. Make sure to check out all the episodes of The Demand Side on The Demand Side's landing page, wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to visit thedemandside.com for access to opinion pieces, books, news, and videos. Thank you all for joining us today. And remember, if you're forced to choose sides, always choose the demand side. Until next time.